0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. In this episode, I sit down with designer Bob Baxley. Bob talks about his 20-year design journey, including his time at Apple and Pinterest, company cultures, and the designer shortage. Enjoy the show. Bob, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Uh, Thanks, Mary. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit about um, what, what your background is, what you're currently doing, and how you arrived at where you are today.
1: That's three questions all wrapped into one. It is. um, Yeah, let's start (laughs) with the first one. How I got where I am. Uh, so I have been doing this for quite a while. This year was my 25th anniversary of, uh, working in tech in Silicon Valley. Um, so I'm older than most. Uh, I started falling in love with computers when I learned to program in the seventh grade hmm. on a, a, Wang computer that had a roaring 4k of memory and stored all the programs on a cassette tape. Um, and I learned basic back then. And I think I just really fell in love with making pixels dance. There was something amazing about computing that spoke to me at a really deep level. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it probably has to do with being uh, kind of a classic INTP personality type and being uh, very into systems thinking, mm-hmm. something magical about programming. Uh, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, uh, my parents decided not to buy me an Apple II, despite <laughs> me begging and pleading. Um, And so I didn't get my own computer until uh, I just about graduated college. And I got a Mac in 1984 with the Microsoft uh, software pack that Mm -hmm. included Word and file and Multiplan and chart and basic um, and just really got into computing. Um, That then turned into a small company I had that did desktop publishing, which was fairly new in 1985, 1986. So we were working with a lot of ad agencies. That was sort of my first introduction to design per se. Um, And then I decided I wanted to uh, do something else. So I sat down one day and uh, literally sent a resume to every advertiser in one particular issue of Macworld magazine. Um, it was about 107 resumes that I dropped in the mail as though they were Christmas cards. <laughs> And uh, one of them went to a company called Claris, which at the time was a wholly owned software subsidiary of Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, and that became a job in California, uh, in Santa Clara, actually designing the first version of Clarisworks, uh, which was an integrated software productivity application uh, for uh, the Macintosh that came out in 1990, 1991. Um, so then I was at Claris doing UI design, uh, and cutting my teeth, doing Mac, uh, Claris Works and Mac Project Pro, a little bit of work in HyperCard, MacDraw, a few other apps there. First time I really got to work with Apple, that was when Apple was just introducing color into the operating system. So it's around the time of System 7. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at Claris for three or four years and then uh, left that and went actually for about six years of consulting. And so there was hmm. sort of this period from 1994 to 1999, more or less, uh, where I was just consulting with a variety of companies in Silicon Valley of different sizes, startups, established companies. and it was kind of an interesting experience. I look back on it now, and it's kind of when I think about getting my 10,000 hours of design, because mm-hmm. you were just having to jump in and do design on all sorts of different projects, on all sorts of different platforms, and all sorts of different mediums. So when I reflect on that period, I think it's when I learned UI design at a really fundamental level, almost more the way a linguist might talk about languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, So instead of just being a web designer, or just being an application designer, or just being a mobile designer, you know, I was working on TV set-top box things, chaos. Mobile apps, web applications, Windows apps, Mac apps, consumer apps, enterprise apps, scientific applications. And when you work on that broad variety of uh, different types of UI uh, mechanisms, in a short period of time, I think you start to understand how humans and computers interact at mm-hmm. a really fundamental level. Um, so that that experience, I think, kind of transformed how I think about UI design and sort of led to my theory that all the world's a UI problem. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and UI is everywhere. And I think people kind of take that for granted. If you just look around the room you're in right now, there's probably 10 different machines that have some sort of user interface on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and all those UIs somebody had to create... And you've had to learn and somebody had to implement, and some of them work better than others. So I did the consulting thing for a bit and then had the opportunity to join a a startup called MyCFO that was a firm that did money management for high net worth individuals. Mm -hmm. It started by Jim Clark, who had previously run or founded Netscape and uh, Silicon Graphics. That's where I was part of a team. That's the first time I got to manage other people. I uh, led a small team of designers plus front-end engineers. Um, So that's sort of my first foray into sort of tech management, per se. Uh, My CFO kind of came unhinged when uh, the dot-com boom uh, fell apart. Uh, From there, I went to Yahoo and eventually was the director of design at Yahoo. Led a team of about 20, 25 people working on all the Yahoo search properties. Uh, Most notably, we designed and launched Yahoo Answers when I was there. Um, and then had a chance to leave Yahoo. It's uh, been about 2006, I believe, and joined Apple as a director of design for the Apple online store. So I joined Apple uh, when the company was still in the middle of the Intel transition from mm-hmm. the old PowerPC platform to Intel chips, and the iPod Mini uh, was the hot, popular product. So I joined Apple about nine months before the iPhone was announced, and I was there for uh, about eight years and two weeks more or less. And uh, so then left about six months before the iPhone 6 came out. And then from Apple joined Pinterest, where I've been for the last year and a half, where I've been uh, head of product design.
0: Awesome. So you mentioned you've worked at both Apple and Pinterest. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the cultures of both and uh, any similarities and or differences uh, between the two, if you could.
1: Yeah. So one of my observations is I've worked not just at Pinterest, but as I've, I've had a chance recently to network with a lot of different uh, startups uh, here in Silicon Valley. So companies like uh, Dropbox and Strava and Quora and Asana and many others. Uh, my observation is that although Apple really dominates the product culture of technology, certainly in Silicon Valley, potentially globally. It's really the Google culture that dominates how companies work. And by that, I mean sort of a culture of uh, engineering-centric, mm-hmm. uh, ship fast, let's fix stuff uh, slowly, uh, you know, sort of intense incrementalism based on metrics and experimentation which is very different from how Apple worked, at least in the time I was there, where it was much more deterministic. you know. And I think the difference maybe has to do with the business models, where Apple is creating a product that they're going to sell and somebody's going to have to pay money for. And that makes you think about how you create that product more like how you might create a movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas these other business models that rely more on advertising, you know, the, the product is the business, and the product is really ultimately about attracting human attention. Um, and so there's a lot more emphasis on how uh, the product is performing from a metrics perspective. Hmm. And so Pinterest, I think, is sort of is trying to sit in between those two right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the but the foundational DNA of, of Pinterest is definitely Google, where Ben Silberman, the the founder CEO, was before he started Pinterest. And then Evan Sharp, who's the creative co-founder, Evan was at Facebook. And my experience of Pinterest is that it's really in between the Google and Facebook culture. A lot of emphasis on on engineering, but still a lot of input from product management. and Obviously, design, having a design co-founder influences the company a lot. But ultimately, a lot of experimentation, a lot of rapid iteration, a lot of metrics-driven decision-making, The iPhone app is updated about every three weeks. The website can be updated almost instantaneously throughout the day, um, which, again, is very, very different from an Apple culture where there's two or three marquee release events during the year, and the company really winds up behind those.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. It's really it is interesting to think about how people describe themselves talking to folks at Google. And and you mentioned the engineering culture They're you know, they're engineering driven. Um, But I was talking to I think it was Katie Dill not too long ago about, you know, how they view how she she views and how the company views themselves at Airbnb. Um, And they're not, you know, they're not engineering driven. They're not design driven. And it's it's really about the sort of triforce of, you know, product management, engineering and design.
1: So at Pinterest, we definitely talk exactly about the Triforce that you just described that they have at Airbnb, and I think that we're trying to get there, and I'm sure Airbnb is trying to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a really hard model to pull off, Um, and I I can be honest, I don't don't think Pinterest is there yet, but we're trying really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, The example that I use, the analogy I often draw is to this is comparing that triforce, if you will, to the structure of the U.S. federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look at the U.S. federal government, you've got the executive branch led by the president, obviously, the legislative <laughs> branch, and then the judicial branch, mostly what we might talk, think of as the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And if you think about engineering PM and design, I sort of like to think of PM as basically like the president, right? They, they can't really do anything on their own, <laughs> but they set the agenda and they set the tone. Mm -hmm. And there's not really that many of them. Uh, And then engineering is sort of like the legislature. Like they (laughs) they got a big budget. They got a lot of people. You got to have them behind the thing you want to do. But, you know, they can't sign stuff into action on their own. And then design's a little bit like the Supreme Court, right? Doesn't have a budget, doesn't have an army, but issues a lot of opinions that we hope everybody generally follows. Um, (laughs) That is great. (laughs) And so, you know, when it's working, and James Madison was a genius of this, when it's working, it's incredibly stable. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's extremely efficient. Um, but but that consensus that derives from all three branches working together is incredibly stable and clearly has served the country very well for a long period of time. Now, the, the challenge when you're working in that triad, if you will, uh, and we see this again in the federal government today, is that there's a natural tension between those three branches. And the tension is, is good and it's useful and it serves the common purpose, mm-hmm. but it's also easy for people in each one of those silos to start to take things personally and to try to find ways um, of um, well, of politicizing that tension instead mm-hmm. of instead of realizing that the other parties have their own incentives and that they're operating out of what they think is the right thing to do as well. And so that the triad's an interesting thing if you can pull it off, but it's it's uh, it's really delicate mm-hmm. and it requires an incredible level of personal maturity mm-hmm. from everyone involved. Um, and so I, I, I think many companies are trying to get to that triad. Um, if you look at most companies around Silicon Valley today, and by that I, I would look at Apple, Yahoo, Google, Facebook, uh, Twitter, like none of them really have that threefold model. Most mm-hmm. of, all those companies have two of the three and one of the three legs is is definitely a minor player.
0: Mm Hmm. No, I can see that. I I absolutely agree. It's interesting because I think the the key is, um, or one of the keys, you mentioned maturity, but also just making sure that folks uh, recognize on a daily basis that that they have a shared vision. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that falls down an awful lot. You you mentioned you don't think it's an efficient setup. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Well, it ends up creating a lot of consensus, right? If you look at, I mean, again, if you want to look at the the governmental comparison, like think of how the U.S. government can move forward an issue versus a totalitarian government. Mm. Um, you know, totalitarian <laughs> governments can make decisions and move really quickly. Mm. I mean, they're they're very unstable, and you don't necessarily want to be a part of that. But they're incredibly efficient at making decisions. And while I, I wouldn't say that Apple under Steve Jobs was totalitarian because it really wasn't—that's the wrong metaphor—but there was a clear path to yes. You know, it was it was very well known who was in charge, who could make the decisions, who had the moral authority to say, let's do this instead of that. Mm -hmm. And so it created an incredible amount of creative efficiency in Apple at that period in time um, that I I haven't seen anywhere else.
0: Mm -hmm. No, that makes perfect
1: sense. I had a conversation with some design leaders a couple of weeks ago. And one of the observations we had was that the companies that have the strongest cultures and the strongest design direction Mm -hmm. are those that are still led by their founders. And the companies where the founders stepped aside still are are still struggling from a cultural and from a vision perspective. And the examples I might use is Jeff Bezos leading Amazon, Mark Zuckerberg leading Facebook, Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs leading Apple, Larry Larry and Sergey leading Google. And you compare that to, and I don't want to put any of these companies down, but I, I think we can pretty clearly say that companies like Yahoo and eBay, where the founders stepped aside fairly early on, I think those companies have struggled culturally compared to the other companies I just mentioned. There's, so there's something about that founder CEO. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I use the phrase moral authority. It is kind of their company. Um, you know, the, when I think of Facebook now that I've been at Pinterest, I realize that the the most amazing thing that Facebook has produced is Mark Zuckerberg. Because <laughs> Facebook was able to grow Mark Zuckerberg, who's a very young man, you know, but right. Facebook was able to grow Mark Zuckerberg to lead one of the most influential companies in history. And from what I can tell, he's doing a killer job. Mm. I mean, that, that is an extraordinary feat. Um, that was that really I think has to be attributed to the whole organization like Mark doesn't do that alone
0: right right? No, it makes sense. Well, it's you know you mentioned the the founders um, sticking around. I mean I think you know I would say that there's a bit of an identity crisis that goes on when there's any kind of change at that level. and it seems to me that and it's strange, I think that um, some of these companies haven't sorted out um, how to make that migration to new, but- new leadership.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes the founders maybe don't have a vision for where they want the company to go. You know, mm-hmm. they're able to get it started and get it moving. But then some other thing comes along and overwhelms them or overtakes it or something. And they lose they lose the vision of where they want to be in two years or five years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then maybe they decide to bring in somebody else to help. And I, I again, I'm hard-pressed to see examples where that's really played out well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to go back to another point you made, which was sure. uh, the question of efficiency and sort of the what you might think of as the Google development model versus kind of the Apple development model. Mm-hmm. So another example I use there, um, different from the government example, <laughs> is, is, is pulled from um, biology and evolution. Um, if you look at, at animal species, there's two different methods by which animals reproduce. It's called reproductive strategies. It's one that's labeled K and one that's labeled R. They both stand for German words that I can't remember. <laughs> um, and I can't even remember which one's which. But one of them is basically, you know, have a whole bunch of babies. You know, it's like turtles on the beach, right? I'm, I'm a turtle on the beach. I'm going to lay 500 eggs. Good luck, everybody. Hope you make it to the water. Sorry about the birds. Maybe I'll see you around, right? <laughs> and then the other one is kind of what gorillas and humans and the higher higher order primates and many other animals use, which is where you're going to have two or three babies and everybody's going to go to Harvard and get a postdoc, right? <laughs> Um, it turns out that those two models are both about equal at getting, new, uh, getting the next generation uh, – bringing along the next generation. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at Apple and you look at Google, I think those models relatively apply, right? And Apple's had four, five, six major inventions, You know, the Apple II, the Mac, the iPod, the phone. Um, I would say the iPad is uh, kind of in the same vein as the phone and then I might throw Apple Retail in there. Mm-hmm. And then you look at Google, like the major innovations there is obviously Search and then Gmail – and then maps. And that's probably the, I mean, I'm sure I'm missing some stuff, but that's kind of the major things. So I think, you know, each one of them, again, sort of a high autonomy, experimental culture on the Google side and a very deterministic, thoughtful, we're going to invest the entire company in everything we do model on on Apple. So it's, again, it's this oversight versus autonomy balance. I think the two of them are, are equally productive um, when they're really invested at the extremes. The, the trick is when you're kind of in the middle and you're trying to give teams autonomy, but still have some oversight. That's that's the piece I haven't seen Figured out quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think many companies are trying to do that because you know the model of experimentation may not yield the design quality that you want, at least not in the short term. Mm-hmm. So I think there's companies that worry about that. Uh, but then, is but then I think the team struggled because do they have autonomy or is it oversight? And really, where do they stand? So I think some confusion can from can come there. But I think for. The executive level, I think it's really important for companies to get clear of where they want to sit on the spectrum from autonomy to oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, at the designer level, you know, you can live with either one. Um, you just need to be really clear like what the rules of the road are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting, right? You're talking about mixed messages, right? It's, it's pe- people need to know where they stand. Um, and it, it is a good question whether or not that hybrid approach can work. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Well, again, I'm not sure I've seen it anywhere. Yeah. Um
0: so the answer would be no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's always possible. I yeah. just, you know, I mean, it is a new industry and I think we're figuring out a lot of methods for making software. And, you know, as, as my friend Margaret Stewart at Facebook recently pointed out, you know, software is the most collaborative creative endeavor that people have ever engaged in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of my degrees is in film production and movies are hyper collaborative, but there's like a really clear creative pecking order that's actually established by union rules. You know, like people know what the director does um, and they know what the best boy does and the gaffer and the grip and the dollies and all those people. Mm-hmm. You come into software and like every company's different. You know, like what a PM does, what an engineer does, what a designer does. It's all it's all different company to company. So I think we're figuring it out, um, and it's gonna take it's gonna take some time still.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and you do wonder. I mean, the the youth of of some of this is is coming into play. As you said, you know, not any one company is. Is treating design the same or the combination of design and technology, um, product development, engineering? It's interesting to see everyone. It's, it seems like a great time of experimentation um, among company cultures.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you look at these companies, you can look at the products that they produce. And then if you, you can actually see those products as a reflection of the culture that produced them. Mm. And so you can start to understand which cultures produce which kind of products you want to have in your life.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it is interesting when you start to look through and you can analyze how company – when you look at product and then back up from the product and say, what is it that makes it that way? Um, It would be an interesting set of case studies, I think.
1: I came across this the other day. I think it's called Cooper's Law where they talk about sort of this organizational law that any – That the product the company produces is a result of the communications structure inside the company. Hmm. And there was kind of that famous theme back in the beginning of the dot-com days that if you looked at any company website, you could look at the tab structure of the navigation and that basically represented the org structure of the company. Hmm. Um, In the early days of Apple.com, there was the Apple tab and then there was the store tab and then there was the Mac tab, iPod. I think it was dot uh, .Mac and then maybe iTunes. And you could, you could literally apply a VP's name to each one of the tabs. Hmm. Um, you know, and that's sort of like how they reconciled it, right? Is that every every VP just got their own little silo up at the top. Apple's come a very long way since then. And they probably have the most integrated website of any large corporate website today where everything's kind of all mashed together. And, and, and it doesn't reflect that as much anymore. But there's still plenty of companies that you can go to and look at the website. And you could apply a VP's name to every particular part of the website.
0: Wow, that's pretty weird. <laughs>
1: well, So there's this other, we'll just riff here for a second. So there's this other theme about how companies evolve and in fact, how entire industries evolve. So in the beginning, it's almost always technology. You know, if it, certainly if that's true for the computing industry. That's That's true for roads and bridges. It's true for automobiles telephones, like everything starts with engineering and technology. And then some companies, they layer onto that, they they eventually move up where they're competing on business models, right? And so Mm -hmm. they start to bring in all the sales guys and you start to see the software bundles and you see the subscription models and they're they're basically uh, outdoing each other on the business side. And then a few companies move to that next level where they're truly uh, competing on design. And about the only company that really does that in technology is Apple, where Apple's strategic advantage, the, the way they compete is around design. Nobody else is really, Really risking the company on the quality of the design. Many, many companies are focused on the business model. So Microsoft, I think famously did that for a long time where you're looking at bundles and subscriptions and, and how they sell things. And then there's still a bunch of companies that are just on the technology side. I might argue that Google is still basically you know competing at the technology layer because they have the best technology. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's not until the technology kind of starts to get commodified that you move up to business. And then eventually the business gets to a point where if you want to take it to the next level of value creation, you move to design. And even Apple, you can move through that food chain where you look at the Apple II was really an incredible feat of engineering. The power supply, the floppy drive. I mean, the Apple II is, was a great accomplishment, and it is a, a magnificent feat of engineering. And then the Scully years was really about Apple competing at the business level. Mm-hmm. They had all these different models of Macs. They had all the different configurations. They had all the different bundles, You know, all the different deals. They were competing at the business level. And then Steve came back to the company in 97, and he would have had to be, he'd been looking at Michael Dell and Dell was completely competing on business models, which was driving down price. And so I think in that moment, you know, just the rational decision was, well, I can compete at the business level and I compete on price and I see where that lands. And that leads to nobody making any money because we're going to drive all the profits out of it. Or I can choose to compete on design and I can add value and I can raise the prices because I'm providing more value to the customers. And so Apple at a very, very deep fundamental level is all about competing on design and the entire company is organized and and thinks that way and i i am hard-pressed to think of other companies maybe tesla now is probably doing that Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe dyson vacuums is doing that Um, and i'm sure there's others that i'm that i'm not thinking of um, that are competing purely at the design level but it's you know there's not that many companies and not necessarily that many industries that have made the that leap yet
0: Mm -hmm. and do you always see it in this order in terms of maturity
1: uh, well, I think they have to build that way. I mean, I think, you know, fundamentally you have to be to be able to deliver the goods, which is right. the engineering piece, right? And then you got to figure out how to make money off of it, which is the business piece. Mm-hmm. And then you can add the design on top. Um, you know, you can design the most amazing thing in the world, but if you can't build it, it doesn't really matter. Um, and if you can't build a good business around it, it doesn't really matter. Right, right. So I, I, again, I mean, maybe there are examples of companies that were designed first, um, But at least I don't know any of them in in large scale technology companies.
0: Sure, sure. No, I was thinking of like engineering and tech and then design. uh, But I would imagine it'd be quite a struggle if you did both of those without a sense of business models in mind. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So um, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, (laughs) A little bit more about you. Um, talk to me about, uh, leading and managing teams. You've been doing it for a while. What, what do you enjoy about it? And I'd love for you to tell me how you think people would describe you as a manager.
1: Oh, you'd have to talk to some people to find out. Um, (laughs) So I like to, you know, fundamentally I'm a designer, which is that I look at a problem. I try to consider all the constraints and all the opportunities and all the options. And I try to project into the future, a solution I want to live with. Mm -hmm. So I, I come to my job thinking as a designer and, my, the jobs I've had for the last 10 years or so, I mostly think about designing the so I like to say, I design the machine that's going to design the designs. Hmm. Right? So uh, my belief as a design executive is that if you get the right people and you envelop them in the right process, that you'll get great product as a result. And I've seen that in different companies. Most, you know, the easiest thing to do is just focus on the product right from the very beginning, but you never scale. It doesn't scale. You got to build out this larger organization underneath you that knows how to move together and moves towards a singular vision of what the product should be. Mm -hmm. So, again, if you get the right people, put them in the right process, you get great product as a result. Hmm. Um, so as a as a manager and as a leader, what I've enjoyed is building the team, building the process, creating environments where designers can really thrive and do better work than they think they're capable of. You know, I'd like to think that many of the people that have worked for me did the best work of their careers, at least up to that point when they were on my team. I I think I have a lot of empathy for how they, what designers need, what they need emotionally, what they need, um, uh, what kind of leadership they need, what kind of management they need, how they need to, uh, what kind of support they need, thinking about their career, mm-hmm. uh, what kind of support they need, managing their relationships. Um, you know, designers. I, I don't know if the design personality um, is particularly well suited to how most. Modern tech companies work. I don't know if designers naturally really enjoy sitting in these huge open offices. I'm pretty certain they don't enjoy going to a bunch of 30 minute meetings. Uh, and I'm relatively confident they don't like having people looking over their shoulders five days a week. Um, so, you know, at an executive level, if you can get into a company and help design the processes. So that the designers have the space to think and the space to work. So you can create an environment where the designers can be happy. Um, that's been incredibly rewarding for me personally. You know, I've, I've had a number of opportunities where I was able to see something nascent in, in somebody and in, in a designer, some skill that maybe they didn't realize they had or some capability that that person didn't even realize they have and be able to set them up in a way that they were really able to, to blossom and develop. And uh, and that's been incredibly rewarding and, and gratifying. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, looking, you know, again, I've been doing this for a while. And when I look back at the 25 years of products that I worked on, like none of those products are really around anymore. Um, I mean, I have little paw prints and maybe in Yahoo Answers or the Apple Store app. But most of the things that I've worked on have been replaced. You know, this is UI design. We're not building the pyramids. We're building sandcastles and they all get washed out with the afternoon tide. Um, So when I look back across the spectrum of a quarter century, the stuff that I remember mostly is the relationships. And the moments of, of joy and excitement that people had when they when they came to that solution, when that product first went out, when they presented a design and the executive fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. Those are all amazing moments to have had. Um, and so I, I when I come to work now, I think more about trying to create an environment that develops more of those memories and more mm-hmm. of those moments. And the products themselves are almost like a byproduct of that, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, S- Steve Jobs talked about this with John Lasseter at one point, uh, John Lasseter obviously being the founder and creative chief of Pixar. And uh, he was saying, you know, John, everything we created at Apple, you know, the most beautiful Mac, it's going to be a doorstop in three years. You know, with these movies you guys are creating, people are going to be watching these in 100 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think you have to be careful what you attach yourself to and And again, you know these software products change so quickly. i'm I'm not sure that the product itself is the thing to attach yourself to so much as the experience of creating it.
0: Mm-hmm. That's yeah, the rate of change, which you know, talk to me a little bit about um in your own career, managing your own career, how do you stay relevant um, given the crazy, maddening pace of change?
1: Well, I think it's an interesting assumption that I do stay relevant.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're welcome.
1: (laughs) I don't know. Uh, You know, I I have a couple of teenagers at home. So my daughter's uh, 15 years old, a sophomore in high school, my son 17, a junior in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And much to their frustration, I spend a lot of time looking at their phone and trying to figure out what apps they're using. And whenever I am out with them and see a group of their friends, I'm Kind of the the guy asking them what apps they're using and how they're using them and what's going on so I think staying in touch with the generation that's behind the millennial generation mm-hmm. is something that kind of comes naturally to me right now because it's happening in my house mm-hmm. um, and then other than that you know i'm I'm out talking to other design leaders all the time um, obviously I read a lot I stay in touch with a handful of venture capitalists that are connecting me to some of their other startups um, and I also, You know, I live in the middle of Silicon Valley. Right. Um, So, you know, somebody once asked me, you know, how do you, sort of what you asked me, like, how do you stay, how do you stay in touch with tech? And I'm like, staying in touch with tech is not the problem. Like, getting away from tech is the problem. (laughs) Um, So, um, you know, you can't walk down University Avenue in Palo Alto and not hear five conversations about tech stuff just as you're walking down the street.
0: Right. You're, You're in a prime location. I mean, you'd have to, you'd have a hard time avoiding any of it. Sure.
1: Yeah. So
0: mm so um talk to me you you talked a little bit about your own education um and it's interesting to talk to folks depending on whether they're from the u.s or outside of the u.s and and again based on age bracket um i hear all different kinds of answers to folks backs- backgrounds on in the design front um but i'd like to talk about the current status of design education do you have any opinion on what's happening there um talk to me a little bit more about yeah. that
1: so let me just say at the beginning if you look at the people that are senior designers, people who are who are have been in the industry for a while today. My observation is that almost all of them are refugees from another career. <laughs> uh, many of them started out in architecture or urban planning mm-hmm. or engineering or, or something. Like they kind of fell into design. I hardly know anybody over forty who set out to be a UI designer. So it's it's really probably only people under twenty five, twenty seven that that would have consciously said, "I want to be a UI designer." Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the talk that I'm going to be giving at the, at the O'Reilly Conference, the Design Conference coming up in January, you know, the goal of the talk is to inspire the current generation of designers to go out into their neighborhood high schools and talk to those students about becoming UI designers. Um, because I firmly believe that if we don't get more people involved in the profession, um, the future is not going to be great. Um, mm-hmm. As it turns out. uh, The stats are this. The U.S. economy is poised to consume 1.4 million new software engineers in the next four years. 1.4 million software engineers in four years. And if you assume a 10 to 1 ratio between engineering and design, which is the bare minimum where designers still want to play, that means you need 140,000 new designers coming into the market in the U.S. alone in the next four years. Now, I can go out just down the street from where I am now, and I can talk to a handful of colleges that are graduating UI designers, and with incredible pride, they will tell me that they're going to have the largest graduating class they've ever had, and they're going to graduate 26 people this year. And I say, that's fantastic. 26 is awesome. (laughs) We need (laughs) 140,000. Like, where are these people going to come from? Mm. Because it turns out those 1.4 million software engineers, they're going to keep on coding they're not going to sit around and wait for us to hand them ideas. They're going to keep going. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't get more designers involved in that conversation, and we don't have some parallel programs to Girls That Code and Yes, We Code and all these code academies, if we don't have parallel design programs, all these devices I mentioned earlier, those 10 machines that you can see from where you're sitting right now, I'm pretty sure they're all going to become even harder to use. And so for me, it's just an imperative that if we want the future to be a place where the machines are serving humans instead of the other way around. And by the way, I think it's pretty even money even right now who's serving who, whether the machines are serving us or we're serving them. I don't think it's totally clear right now. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure if we don't get more people involved in design and thinking about representing the human side, all this stuff's going to get harder to use. Hmm. So you were asking about design education. And to be honest, I'm not really sure. My background personally is in liberal arts. I have mm-hmm. a degree in history from the University of Texas, which turns out to be a great education for design because it's about storytelling. It's about weaving together multiple points of view. It's about sitting with ambiguity. It's about analyzing possible outcomes. I didn't pick history so I could be a UI designer, but it turned out to be a great education, a great way of learning how to think about large-scale multivariate problems. I wasn't even on the campus of a design school until a couple of months ago. So I'm Really naive about what happens in design schools, but I'm trying to learn. Mm. Uh, my observation is that a lot of European designers they go to classical design training, and that Europe as a culture celebrates design in a way that the United States as a culture uh, maybe it celebrates the output of design, but it doesn't it doesn't celebrate design as a profession. Um, and so we have seen a lot of designers coming out of. Uh, European design schools that are incredible design thinkers. What I see in the U.S., the best design thinkers that I see in the U.S. probably came out of architecture schools. Hmm. And then, and then right now, you know, when I look at design education, I look at the boot camp programs, and I see the curriculum at many of the mainstream design programs. There seems to be a lot of emphasis on the tools. You know, learning sketch, learning Photoshop, mm-hmm. learning type, basic techniques of research. Um, I don't know if that's design thinking. Um, that's treating design more sort of like a trade in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if that in and of itself gets you the next generation of great design thinkers. Um, having led a bunch of design teams, it seems to me that what we have to figure out, and many companies are going to have to figure this out, is how to bring in junior talent and develop them. Because I'm, I'm not sure we're going to have time to wait for enough designers to get to a point in their career where they want to go back and teach. So I don't know if we're going to be able to wait for the for the educational part of of UI design to mature enough to feed us new designers. So I think the industry as a as a whole is going to have to start taking on more of the challenge of training up designers through apprenticeship programs or their own fellowship programs or different internship programs, something like that.
0: Interesting. Okay. Well, it's it's interesting that you say you don't have an opinion, but yet you do. And and I would <laughs> I, I, I would argue that design schools should have some of the liberal arts training. That people like yourself have, have graduated with. Um, yeah, I,
1: you know, at, at a high level, I've kind of come to think of you. Know, there's two types of people that go into UI design. There are folks that 100 years ago would have been writers, and there are people that 100 years ago would have been painters. Um, and it's two really different mindsets. Um, I'm clearly on the writing side, and I think that's where the liberal arts, history, English, that sort of stuff comes from. Mm-hmm. And then it's people on the painting side, you know, but even painters in, in fine art school, you get a lot of art criticism, a lot of art history, you know, like you understand art at a really deep level. Um, and so I, I, I think we're struggling with that educationally, where again, we're we're spending a lot of time teaching people the tools, but I don't know if we're teaching them, uh, if we're spending a lot of time teaching them how to think.
0: Mm -hmm. So related to that, what do you think is the one, and you can only pick one, the most important quality for designers today?
1: I only get to pick one?
0: One. Okay, I'll give you two, but...
1: Well, if you're (laughs) going to give me two, that's easy. So obviously, (laughs) empathy with other people, you know, being able to engage with other people in conversation, understand their points of view... Um, Put yourself in their shoes. Mm -hmm. Empathy is an incredibly important uh, emotional skill. Um, And then second to that, I'd say the thing that I see that's incredibly important and also lacking in most every designer I see is storytelling. You know, very few designers that I have encountered recently have the ability to package their ideas in a way that you can really tell the story and get people excited about them. You know, can they really tell the, tell the story from the user's point of view of how this technology works, what it's going to do, how it's going to serve them. Can mm-hmm. they set up the pitch for the executive, you know, and story, storytelling's a, it's a, you know, it's a remarkable skill and it's how you present designs in a way that they can be evaluated mm-hmm. and decisions made about them. Um, you know, it's not it's not pitching. It's not persuasion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not trying to talk somebody into something. It's not trying to, you know, it's, it's not trying to polish up something that's not good to start with. But there, there's a way of presenting things in a story that allows the other person to relate to it and understand it at a really fundamental level and allows them to then make a decision about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't see that many people that are good at telling stories. Hmm. It is its own craft for sure. It is, you know, one of the a friend of mine at, at LinkedIn was. We were talking recently about the difference between communicating in headlines and communicating in punchlines, hmm. which I thought was a really interesting thing. And they were talking about how the CEO of LinkedIn, Jeff Weiner, that he communicates in headlines. You know, like boom, here's the decision. This is what it is, and then all the explanation of how they got there. Right? Hmm. That's a that's a really interesting way to communicate. And then the other side is punchlines, where you kind of have the big buildup and you get to the end and like here's the reveal. And I've thought about that a little bit in terms of. Leading an organization like what Jeff's doing when he's commuting internally, and then trying to get people excited and sell a product like Steve Jobs was doing when he was announcing a product at a keynote. And so, if you think of the like, like Steve Jobs was the ultimate punchline person. If you mm-hmm. so, I mean, sorry, he communicated in punchlines incredibly well. And there's no better example than the iPhone announcement at Macworld in 2007. Mm-hmm. The way he sets that thing up and then reveals the phone is phenomenal. It's, it's, it is, it is the storytelling technology introduction that everyone should go watch and study in detail, because it is incredible. Uh, I don't know if that's how you lead a company, though. Like, there's something about a, a headline thing where you say, "Here's what we're doing," and then here's the rationale that helps, you know, helps um, galvanize people towards towards action. It's mm-hmm. really different. So, so I, I think the two modes of storytelling are both really important. You have to really be conscious of which one you're using and really thoughtful about the communication. So, yeah, storytelling is its own craft. Um, I wish more people thought about it deeply and Mm -hmm. tried to get good at it
0: well it's a means of communication i think in general communication seems to be this really difficult um basic skill for for everybody not just designers but i think it's hitting on designers so much because you're working across teams and you're working with different specialties um
1: yeah the irony there is that Look, UI design is professional communications. Right. Mean, fundamentally, we are professional communicators, <laughs> right? Um, and it turns out that, you know, graphic designers, they communicate in posters, you know, and then we, and then UI designers figured out how to make the posters dance. And then there's yep. people that design software systems where they have people that are able to choreograph the dance for the poster. You know, there's sort of these layers of complexity that get in there, but ultimately we're all professional communicators. Um, and so if you're a designer and you can't communicate in stories and you can't communicate in presentations and you can't communicate verbally or writtenly, like, uh, or I'm sorry, in writing, I uh, I don't know, it's going to be tough to be a really successful designer.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So speaking of that, I mean, you've, you've managed plenty of designers over the years. Are you know, have you worked in teams with, you know, designers that were specialists, designers that were generalists? Do you have an opinion on whether it's it's better to be one or the other? Does it have to do with the kind of company or work you're looking um, to take on? Talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Uh, Well, I hate to say it depends, but it depends. I I think of designers, and I mean this with all love and admiration, you know, designers are all their own little butterflies, right? They're all their own Mm. special combination of experiences and skills and capabilities. You know, when I look out across a studio of designers, I I see a bunch of people, and I see people living their lives, but I also see what I describe as a bunch of organic computers, right? There's a whole bunch of algorithms sitting out there, and all those algorithms are are suited to different types of problems. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the same way that you might pick Photoshop for a certain design problem versus Illustrator versus Sketch versus something else, you know, I... Part of the dark art for me of being a great design manager is understanding somebody's cognitive style and being able to match that to the design problem. And hmm. so when you're saying is it better to be a specialist or better to be a generalist, like, I don't know, those aren't, those aren't choices. Those are cognitive styles. Hmm. Um, and so I think you just have to figure out your cognitive style and be true to it um, and then seek out problems that are uniquely suited to that style.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So another another hot hot button these days, as you you know, I'm sure is all the talk of diversity and inclusion and the design spaces in the tech space in general. Um, And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how we uh, solve that.
1: Yeah, well, it goes back to this concept of, of cognitive styles, right? And mm-hmm. a team is going to be able to solve a greater variety of problems if they have greater cognitive diversity. And cognitive diversity often comes along with with uh, demographic diversity. Mm-hmm. So we can focus on demographic diversity, uh, which is a noble and important goal. But I think the benefit for the business, the strategic reason to do it, is that you get this great cognitive diversity. And so when I look at a, a, a large, well-functioning team, I hope to see not only the obvious diversity around gender and age and race, but also different backgrounds, different socioeconomic situations, different geographic backgrounds. You know, you want people from all different areas of life and all diff- all these different ways of thinking about the problem, because somewhere at the intersection of all those different cognitive styles are going to come up with a solution that nobody would have ever considered on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I think... Tech companies are realizing the strategic value of cognitive diversity. Um, So I think that's a great first step. Um, The second piece is how do you get more people who we might describe as underrepresented in tech, how do you get them interested in tech? And again, it goes back, you know, my, my situation right now because I have teenagers at home and they're trying to make career decisions and I talk to their friends. Uh, you know, I'm stunned at how few people even realize that UI design is an option. There's such an emphasis, certainly in Silicon Valley, there's such an emphasis on STEM and it's all about technology and engineering and math. You know, well, it turns out there's a bunch of kids that are over in the history department and the drama department and the music department and the film production department, and they would all be fantastic software designers. And I hope that they, that some of them come into tech um, and not come into tech and become engineers. So I, I think there's an opportunity for a lot of folks in society to realize that there's a lot of ways to participate in tech, and I mean that economically and professionally, um, without having to be an engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I think once people realize that there's a lot of opportunity in tech beyond engineering, that we'll start to see other um, other cognitive styles, other types of people come into the industry.
0: Mm-hmm. But it sounds to me like it needs to, and you've you've mentioned this, you yourself, it needs to be a grassroots effort to some degree.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly companies can go recruit in places they haven't recruited in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, And many, many companies now, Pinterest included, but others as well are starting to go out to universities and do internships. Um, Again, I still think you need to get one level before that. And and it might be because I have teenagers at home. But, you know, a lot of those career choices are being made uh, in high school. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the orientation is being You know, it's happening even in elementary school where, Mm -hmm. again, it's this STEM, 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 and I got nothing against STEM. I really appreciate my good friend John Maeda trying to make it STEAM and adding art in there. Mm -hmm. Um, But I still think, you know, we need more than one letter if there's going to be five. Uh, (laughs) You know, know, it can't just be art amongst science, technology, and math. Like, there's got to be some more stuff in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah. Okay. Uh,
0: Interesting. So, one final question. What's next for you?
1: (laughs) I'm not sure. Um, I suspect I'll go into another design leadership operating role somewhere, but mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not sure what exactly. Um, as I mentioned, I've been doing this for 25 years straight without a break. So um, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to uh, speak at some conferences, meet more people, do more interviews like this, and maybe get a little bit different perspective of what's going on. I've mm-hmm. been pretty heads down for a while. Um, and I think there are larger issues that uh, Mm -hmm. are bigger than any single company. And we've talked about some of them today. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those are issues that I think are really important. And I think some of those issues are going to have a really profound impact on the quality of life in the future. Mm -hmm. So those are interesting things to think about and and write about and and, uh, try to develop some more perspective on. But I also, uh, I now totally relate to my son who is asked almost every day where he wants to go for college. Uh, and now, uh, multiple times a day, somebody asks me, so what are you going to do next? I don't know. I'm going to go take a nap.
0: <laughs> right. <okay." laughs> Leave me alone. I'm going to go have lunch. Right. Right. Well, thank you, Bob, so much for, for joining me today. I appreciate you making time.
1: Of course. My pleasure. Thank you, Mary.
0: Bob will be keynoting at the O'Reilly Design Conference happening January 19th through 22nd. You can find out more at O'Reilly.com forward slash design you can reach Bob through his Twitter handle, at B Baxley. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or tune in so you never miss an episode.